You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to the Lab Notes podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens, and today I am very proud to be welcoming one of the emerging stars of the Australian startup ecosystem. Originally trained in commerce and marketing, Cheryl Mack has a knack for networks. She was the driving force behind Australia's startup convention, StartCon, and despite being only 10 years into her career, she has already worked, mentored, and invested across organizations including the Sydney Startup Hub, the Founder Institute, She Starts, Stone and Chalk, Airtree, and the Macquarie University Incubator. It's a network Cheryl has built through a characteristic mix of tenacity and charm, and a network that is now helping Cheryl launch a new angel investment platform for Australia. She has recently closed a $1.4 million funding round to launch her company, Aussie Angels, which promises to replicate the highly successful US syndicate investment platform, AngelList, helping to smooth the funding of entrepreneurial ventures across Australia. Cheryl Mack, it's a tremendous pleasure to welcome you to the Lab Notes podcast. Thank you for having me here. So Cheryl, we like to start our interviews by inviting our guests to provide their own personal introduction. Could you give us the elevator pitch for yourself and Aussie Angels? Sure thing. Um, So I am the CEO and founder of Aussie Angels, which is a platform that supports angel syndicates to operate smoothly and effectively. We bring together angel investors from all over the country in Australia and New Zealand to co-invest in startups together. So I'm sure our audience will detect the accent pretty quickly. I I believe you're from Canada. Can you give us a sense of your early life? And I understand that you're pretty entrepreneurial, even from a young age. Any stories of early entrepreneurship would be fantastic. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, my earliest earliest one was actually a business that um, my parents helped me put together, mostly because I was only five years old. But it was a company called Smart Kids, and we helped kids learn how to use computers. And uh, that, that kind of gave me my first uh, introduction to uh, running a business, which was pretty cool at a pretty early age. Um, from there, you know, university, I thought I'll, uh, I'll start a walking and hiking and walking tour business. Um, I went to university in Canada um, on the West Coast in British Columbia. And, you know, I didn't really do very much market research, but I started and we had all of three customers before I realized that market research was an important course to take. Um, so needless to say, I did that the next year. Um, and yeah, you, you, you probably hear that I sound Canadian. I am in fact, Australian, um, fun fact, my parents were born in Australia and Adelaide specifically, they moved to Canada before I was born, had me there. And then 24 odd years later, I decided to move back to Australia. So, uh, although I sound Canadian, it's just because my parents forgot to have me in Australia. <laughs> I love that. Well, I'm sure we're very glad to have you back, even if you were never meant to be gone to begin with Cheryl. I want to quickly touch on your early career because you finished your degree in commerce and marketing, and it looks like you took on some sales roles across quite a lot of companies in the first, say, five years out of university. Can you describe that experience for us in the phase before you came across to Australia? 
Yeah. So it's it's kind of sales. It's kind of not. So that that experience is actually um, me working as a brand ambassador, and uh, a brand ambassador is a pretty fun role because uh, basically I actually worked for only one company, but they deployed me into places like Diageo, um, Kellogg's, um, Vitamin Water. Uh, there's probably a number of others that you see on my LinkedIn profile there. And of course, me trying to spoof up my LinkedIn profile in my early career days, put each company that I was a brand ambassador for, but it was actually all under the same um, the same company that was deploying me. And so I would get to do things like, oh, I also worked for like BlackBerry and HP. I got to do some really cool stuff. So like some days, you know, I'd go into a mall and hang out at a kiosk with the latest BlackBerry and just like show people how to use the cool phone. And HP gave me um, a laptop, like their newest HP Envy laptop for a whole semester just to use and show off to my like university friends. And Microsoft gave me um, like money to spend on like Microsoft PowerPoint parties. It was hilarious. So I'd like invite all my friends and we'd like have like PowerPoint presentations and do like improv using PowerPoint. Um, and so that that's that's what I got to do. And it was a really fun job. Um, but yeah, it was it was sales in a way, but uh, the title is actually brand ambassador because I got to do all that fun stuff where uh, all my friends saw me with the latest, coolest stuff. And I was really just being paid to do it, although they knew I was. So it wasn't like I was, um, you know, deceiving them or anything. Uh, I, that's, that's really interesting. I guess the thread I'm trying to pull out here is you had said that early venture stumbled on market research. Do you think this role helped you understand customer journeys better? Yeah, definitely. I think you know, there's, there's not just customer research, there's, you know, market research, there's like the psychology behind why people do things the way they do and, and why people buy different things. And that's a piece I think that I've, I've gotten to understand a lot more deeply throughout my entire career. It's not just, you know, that one market research course that I did. Um, every time you interact with customers and, um, and see how they react to something that you put out, it's, it's a piece of learning. Um, and I, it's something I constantly do to this day. Every time I have a hypothesis, you know, I think, cool, I'm going to start a website for cat hats. And then you put it out there and or talk to someone and do some research. And it turns out there's absolutely no market for that. So that's, yeah, that's, that's an ever ongoing lesson. Yeah. I think that is incredibly relevant to our audience, Cheryl, because Love Notes is really focused on you know, research-based entrepreneurship and deep tech entrepreneurship. And those type of entrepreneurs tend to be deeply focused on their technical expertise, but perhaps lacking in the market knowledge and business now. Is there advice you give to deep tech entrepreneurs who pass through your networks and programs around this? Oh, absolutely. In fact, more so than uh, than other founders. Um, you know, I talk to a lot of business founders who, you know, try to go out and build a business before they actually build anything. Technical founders, when I talk to them, seem to be very focused on the product and the features. And I have a really hard time often saying, tell me about the problem. What does the customer face? What do they feel? And they go, yeah. And the product actually comes with this really cool feature that does this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, that didn't answer my question. We go around in circles a lot of times. And it's awesome that you're really excited about the features and the product. But in my experience, if you fall in love with the product, when it doesn't work as you thought it would, then you get really frustrated. Whereas if you fall in love with the problem that the customer faces, you will go to the ends of the world and back to try to solve that problem with various different products and features and solutions. And that makes for a much longer lasting business than the other way around. So 
when I talk to technical founders, my biggest piece of advice is talk to your customer, talk to your customer, talk to your customer, stop building. If you've already started, if you haven't started yet, fantastic. Don't start building anything yet. Go talk to your customer first. Um, and when I say customer, I guess, I mean, the person that you think might pay you, the, the potential customer, go talk to them, ask them what their problems are, ask them what they're facing, ask them how they feel, ask them a million and one questions. And once you've done that with a hundred of your potential customers, that's when you can start building something. And I promise you, you will get a much better outcome with that approach. than if you build first and talk later. That's phenomenal advice, Cheryl. I mean, in, in startup circles, that idea of talk to your customer is so ingrained in the entrepreneurial methodology, but for research entrepreneurs in particular, there, there can be a disconnect between the lab work they're doing and the companies that might use their product. So in particular for those deep tech entrepreneurial projects, it's so critical to make that connection to your end user as early as possible. But let's move on. I want to talk about how you personally got involved in the startup ecosystem. How did you go from your marketing degree to, to entering this entrepreneurial world? Yeah, I guess um, it's kind of a funny story because you know, I went to UBC, which is a pretty traditional school and going through the marketing program, you know, the hot job at the moment when I was graduating was being a brand manager. So I went and applied at all these places like L'Oreal and Target and, you know, I can't even remember this is like... 15 years ago now, but I wanted to, I remember I applied a bunch of these places to be a brand manager. And it was the moment where uh, L'Oreal had called me back and said, we are so excited. We're going to fly you out to the other side of the country for your final interview for the position of brand manager of L'Oreal's mascara, black number 862. I'm like, hmm, how many mascaras does L'Oreal have? I go, oh yeah, like thousands. I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm going to be a brand manager of one of them. She was like, yep. And I'm like, okay, interesting. Yeah, actually, I'm not, I'm not into this anymore. I'm like, don't fly me out. No, thanks. Um, and so I just, I think I had like seven or eight interviews lined up for these types of positions. And I just canceled them all. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm not going to be a brand manager, what else am I going to do? And I couldn't really figure it out. So I, I think I had a friend that worked at the local co-working space and he was like, just come in and hang out with me for the day. And I was like, okay, cool, whatever. So I went in and, and hung out with him for the day and I met like three or four different startups. And by the end of the day, all of them had offered me, Hey, like, you know, if while you're trying to figure out what you want to do in life, you know, you just graduated in marketing. Why don't you just come and do some like marketing stuff for us, like write some emails and, you know, um, set up a couple trip campaigns. And I was like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. So by the end of the day, I think I was working, sorry, I started working for like three different startups. And that essentially, that kind of started me off in this path of, I worked for one startup, set up some of their marketing stuff, worked myself out of a job, and then went on to the next one. And I was doing something called marketing automation. I didn't know if it was named at the time. I didn't know that it was called that. And, and that started me in the startup space. And then I eventually got a full-time role at, at one of the startups. And uh, you asked about Startup Grind. Uh, so Startup Grind was really in its infancy. They only had about 18 or 19 chapters at the time, because I remember I was the 20th chapter. And they, somebody said, you know, oh, they're trying to set up a, a chapter here and Cheryl would be good. And they recommended me. And, and so they reached out and I ran my first event at that co-working space that I had uh, initially started working at. And again, that kind of brought all of the startup people together. And I was the center of that event. And there wasn't that many events going on. And Startup Grind had this like global aspect to it that Vancouver didn't really have at the time. So I was the cool kid on the block uh, from, from, you know, the first year or so out of university. I have not looked back since. 
<laughs> no, you, you certainly haven't, Cheryl. And I guess this early phase of your career really speaks to something that you have continued in the years that followed, which is to often work multiple jobs or work with different companies and different programs in parallel with one another. And I've got two questions around this. One is just the logistical side of how do you manage it all? But secondly, what, what drives you to keep saying yes to all of these opportunities? Hmm, it's a good question. You know, I'm, I'm probably arguably not the best uh, person at being like structured and and diligent about that. I do get my hands into a lot of pies. I love to wear a lot of different hats. It keeps me engaged in life. Um, I'm probably a little bit unique in the sense that like my free time and what I consider like downtime um, it still very much revolves around the startup space. Like I am the most extroverted person you'll meet. So for me, downtime is going out to the bar with a bunch of my startup or investor friends. Like that's how I recharge. Um, but one could also consider that work. And often it is because sometimes that just involves going or hosting an, uh, an event for the tech space. And then, you know, I also love just, you know, being on Twitter and LinkedIn and chatting with people. And again, one could consider that work, but for me, it doesn't feel like it. So I would say often a lot of my free time that other people might be using to do other things, I actually spend doing what some people would consider work. So yeah, I, I probably just spend a lot of my time um, in this space, but I really genuinely enjoy it. Yeah, look, it's probably why you and your networking events are so popular, Cheryl. That kind of enthusiasm and optimism is always attractive and infectious to those who are around you. But let's let's talk about your transition now, because we've been in Canada up to this point. What brought you to Australia and into the Australian startup scene? So I had been out of university for a couple of years, and uh, I met a lovely partner, um, Thomas, and he mentioned to me, he wanted to go live somewhere else in the world and I was like cool where do you where do you want to go and he was like well maybe like London Hong Kong or Sydney and I was like cool uh well if we do Sydney I've already got the passport because my parents were born there and I'm actually a citizen already so I wouldn't need a visa so actually it had nothing to do with um, the startup worlds uh Sydney was meant to be a two-year thing it's now been eight we sold all of our stuff and moved to Australia in uh, January of 2015. And I did not have a job. I basically landed in the country and I, because I was already so connected in the startup ecosystem in Canada, I just thought, cool, I'm going to go meet all the startup people here. And that's how I'll figure out what I want to do with my life in this country for the next two years. But, you know, and at the time, 2015, like the startup ecosystem was still pretty small. So like I reached out to everyone. I reached out to Murray Herps. I reached out to Fishburners, um, Annie Parker, and, and just said, Hey, can I, can I meet with you? And luckily for me, they were all very uh, open and I just went around the city and, and probably met 20 to 30 people in the span of a month. And then I decided that because I'd worked for a number of smaller tech companies in Canada, uh, I really wanted to go work for a big tech company. So at the time in Sydney, like there was really two Atlassian and freelancer.com. They were kind of the big cats in town. And so I looked into both of them, decided freelancer was more my style. And, uh, and I went and knocked on their door and I said, Hey, I want to work for you. Give me a position. Um, I did that for about a week and they eventually relented and, and gave me something. And that started me on my journey with freelancer.com and Starcon. You couldn't ask for a better case study than that for the value of knocking on doors and meeting people, Cheryl. It's a, it's a proven strategy, but probably one still underutilized by most people. Now, now, you mentioned your job at Freelancer, and that's an important stage in your career because it led pretty quickly to you running this startup convention, StartCon, which I think was an annual event for the space. 
Can you tell us what that job entailed? Uh, it's not, it's no longer, but yes, uh, it was annual at the time. So again, another kind of serendipitous story. So because I was running Startup Grind in Vancouver, Canada, when I landed in Sydney, I think there might've been a chapter previously, but there was no chapter currently. And so they said, cool, do you want to run the Sydney chapter? And I was like, yeah, awesome. Like, that'll be a great way to get integrated. So I started um, running the Startup Grind Sydney chapter. And because I was doing that, uh, maybe like a month into being in the country, I got invited to this like cool tech dinner. Um, and I show up to this dinner, it's probably about 20 people. And I sit down at the table and I look kind of left and right. And like Mike from Atlassian is there and Rob from Wise Tech, basically like all the you know heavy hitters in the startup ecosystem at that time. I'm kind of looking around. I'm like, I'm a little out of place here, but okay. Um, and who sits across from me, but Matt Berry, the CEO and founder of freelancer.com. He kind of looks at me, he's squinting. He's like confused a bit. He looks side to side and he kind of, he's like, what the hell is this? I can see in his head. You know, he didn't say this, but I can see in his mind. He's kind of going like, we just hired this girl as like an account manager um, like three weeks ago. What what is she doing here at this dinner? Like with all of these, you know, high profile founder CEOs. And I think we got to talking that night. So the next day I show up to work and he pulls me into a room and he goes, Hey, so you've got some like startup event marketing experience, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, cool. Well, we just acquired this conference called Sidstart. It's unprofitable. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of small scale, you know, it's not, it's not amazing, but I think it could be great. Do you want to work on it? And I was like, you're really selling it, Matt, but yes, sure. Uh, and so that's, that's the story of how I came to create um, the company StartCon under the freelancer umbrella at the time. So I, I built that company and, and started it from, from the ground up, but uh, it was under the freelancer.com umbrella. So this is your, I guess, first founder story in, in some senses, but with the support of freelance.com. Yeah, correct. How, how did you go with, with kind of running this entity as a CEO? I mean, it was awesome and it was terrifying and it was crazy and chaotic and all of the things that founders face. I, you know, I had to make money and build a team and do sales and build a product. You know, um, you'd think just an event, uh, you know, a company that just runs events, which we didn't do, but most people looked at us from the outside and go, cool, you run a conference, done. Um, you'd think that we wouldn't need tech, but freelancers position was always, if we need it, we'll build it rather than uh, bringing it, you know, getting software. So, uh, you know, when I needed a website, I was given a tech team and uh, was a product manager for that tech team to build my StartCon website. Um, and so I had to learn how to manage a tech team uh, and I had to learn how to manage one overseas because a tech team I was given was the Philippines. Uh, and then when we needed an app, we built it. And then when we needed a payment system, we like, it was, it was pretty crazy. I'm not sure I would recommend that as a way of going about doing it, but that was the policy at the time. And it actually gave me some invaluable knowledge and experience in working with um, developers and being a product manager. So yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that experience with the world, um, but I would definitely probably do some things differently if I had the knowledge I do now to start all over again. So through StartCon and I guess your efforts networking in other places like the Sydney Startup Hub and Fishburners and, and many others, you've really been quite involved in the evolution of the Australian startup scene over the last five to 10 years. From your perspective, how much change has there been since you landed in Australia? So over the years, I mean, when I 
when I first landed in Australia in January of 2015, there wasn't a lot going on relatively to what is happening now. Like there were very few startup events. Um, so when I first started running Startup Grind, like we got a hundred people come out to our first one. Now, if you run a meetup monthly, you're maybe lucky to get 20 people because there's just so much more on offer and so much more available. So the startup ecosystem at the time was very nascent. And I mean, like, I'd love to take a little bit of credit, but there was no other startup focused conference. Now, again, you see lots and it's a testament to the maturity of our ecosystem where we've gotten to over the last seven or eight years at this point. Um, I firmly believe that we are moving at an incredible speed, even faster than what we saw in the U.S. over the last 15 years. We've closed that gap and achieved what it took the U.S. to achieve 15 years. We've achieved that in six. You know, we're still further behind them, sure, but the speed at which we are growing and maturing is incredibly fast compared to our overseas counterparts. Yeah, I think that really does echo what we've heard from other uh, investors and network builders that we've had on the podcast over the last few years is that there has been this transformational change in the ecosystem over the last decade and founders and researchers who are considering an entrepreneurial path should take heart that these mechanisms of support and financing are now available and maturing in the Australian ecosystem. But as well as talking about, I guess, the holistic picture, I'd love to get some case studies from you, Cheryl. Are there any particular people that you've met along your journey that have become important relationships and kind of speak to the growth of the ecosystem that you've experienced? Oh, man, yes. Um, one thing you'll learn about the startup ecosystem is it is um, very incestuous in an absolutely fantastic way. Um, <laughs> you know, not, a, not in the bad sense, but it is. It really is. Like people tend to be across multiple things. You know, I'm an LP in a number of funds. I'm a mentor at a number of programs. I'm an investor in a number of companies, um, some of which I'm like triple or quadruple dipped because I'm an LP in other funds. So there is so much crossover. And these are, these are some really amazing people. Of course, you're going to become friends with them. You know, one of my oldest friends at this point, his name is David Smith. He's now the head person of use at Incubate. And he had a business at the time. I think it was the very first conference I ran in Sydney when it was still called Sidstart. And in order to, you know, just drum up some interest in the startup alley, uh, I wrote a number of articles for different startups just to kind of you know, get some press out there. And, and David, uh, his company at the time, Nocal, was one of them that I wrote that for. And he still brags to this day that I gave him his very first piece of PR media. And, and we're fantastic friends at this point, obviously, that, you know, the company didn't, didn't survive, but our friendship did. And we've helped each other over the years. I think he started another company um, a number of years back as well, after that one. And, you know, I've, I've gone through a number of different roles. And, throughout, you know, the eight years that we've now known each other, you know, my husband and I would go over to spend time with him and his wife and his kid and have sleepovers at this point, um, drink lots of wine together. And we're always sounding board for each other. So I think the people in this ecosystem are some of the most amazing people and you just can't help but become friends with them. Like for me, it's impossible to separate business life from personal life because, you know, when you're a founder, this is personal. When you're an investor, like you create personal relationships. And I spend a lot of time being a sounding board for a number of the founders that I'm invested in. It's part of the job.
So by this time, Cheryl Mack has not only succeeded in joining the Australian startup ecosystem, she has also become an important advocate for its growth and improvement as well. In particular, Cheryl has been a consistent and passionate advocate for increasing diversity and representation at all levels, from founding teams to incubators and VC investment panels. And whilst Cheryl herself has certainly been embraced by the ecosystem, there are nevertheless still hints that her success is the exception rather than the norm. I asked Cheryl about how Australia is responding to the growing cohort of women in tech and how she feels about being seen as one of the champions of change. So the tech ecosystem has traditionally been a boys club from the investors who invest in the companies to the people who found them. And it's it's nothing that they've done maliciously. It's just, it has been traditionally more male dominated people who found businesses. And when you go to raise money, who do you go to? You go to your friends. Who are your friends if you're a guy? They, they tend to be more male. And so if you go to your friends who are more male, you ask them to invest and they do. And then when you're successful and everyone gets an exit, who are the people that are more likely to start businesses? Who are the people that are more likely to reinvest? The males, founders, friends that just made big money on that exit. Uh, and so it kind of creates this circle that perpetuates the boys club. And of course, it doesn't help that um, the gender pay gap also limits the amount of money that women can invest into startups. And so they're less likely to be able to, even if they are asked. Um, and so when we talk about like gender diversity specifically, and I'm, I'm a big proponent of diversity in general. I think we need to see way more underrepresented founders in general. But if we're focusing in on that gender diversity piece, um, there are a number of factors that are still currently and, and have historically been limiting for women to get into both the, the founder space as well as the investor space. And so it is important, I think, to create uh, places and create room in order to remove that bias. And a number of programs like She Starts and SheEO and Scale Investors and SBE and Addo, uh, sorry for forgetting others. There, there are lots now, which is fantastic. Again, 2015, when I came here, there was nearly nothing. Um, so it is really important to create those spaces that can help us create success stories and break that cycle. Yeah, to totally, Cheryl. And Look, I know that you work across multiple levels of the ecosystem, but I'd love to get your thoughts on the investor side specifically, because I know you sit on some of those investment committees. How are these issues discussed at the investment fund level? Yeah, the same conversation is absolutely happening. I think investors realize that, um, you know, or some investors, not all, but uh, investors are starting to realize that uh, more diversity on your founder teams is just good business. It creates better outcomes for your exits. And when you're in the business of making money, things like that matter. Um, so it's not just about, you know, philanthropy and trying to give back just for the sake of saying, you know, I'm, I'm gender diverse. It's actually just good business practice. Um, when I talk to other investors about this, it's absolutely a consideration. Um, when we look at the teams that we invest in, I'll be honest, my portfolio is still majority male. And that's um, a factor that, you know, many of us talk about is that the pipeline of founders that are within our mandate tend to be predominantly male. Um, and it's really hard to go out and find those ones uh, that are female. And when we do, you know, they're, um, they are highly, highly sought after, um, but it's definitely still a struggle. And I think that having programs like um, female focused accelerators that can encourage women to take that leap and start a business and, 
and utilize that skill set outside of the corporate world, for example, um, it's it's really helpful. I think I'm going to have to add a few terms to our glossary to uh, to unpick this. But you talk about the mandate, which should make clear that that is kind of the rules and the objectives of the funds that you are working for that have been preset and sold to the underlying investors. Correct, exactly. Um, and more loosely for angel investors like myself, it's not that I've preset it and sold that uh, to a group of investors. It's my own personal mandate as to what I believe I will be a successful angel investor in by investing in these particular types of companies. So funds, absolutely, that's exactly what we mean. But also angel investors have their own mandates and it's based off our experience, um, our our own personal opinions and thesis. And uh, we know in general that when you invest on a thesis, um, actually, we don't know this. I, uh, I have the opinion that, and I think most people hold the same opinion that if you invest based on a thesis, then you are more likely to be able to hit on one of the potential big winners. So angel investors tend to stick to that thesis or mandate as well. And you also mentioned heuristics there, which to me at least indicates that it's not necessarily a quantitative process investing in a startup. It relies on some other factors that maybe can't be quantified as well. Is that fair? How quantitative do you get in making investment decisions, I guess, both as an angel and within VC funds? Funds can get real quantitative. Uh, <laughs> I can't even go into all of the ways that they can get super quantitative about it. Um, but at the end of the day, yes, investing, uh, early stage, ultra high risk investing is a lot of um, gut feel. And um, and what we, again, I'm going to use another term, but I will define it, um, what we call pattern matching. So when I talk to successful founders and we look at, say, you know, Atlassian and what did they look like in the early days? And then we compare that against hundreds of other successful businesses and what the founders, the team, the market, the target audience everything that they're doing, we compare that against a number of other things um, and across the board. And then we end up with our own personal beliefs. We, we start to see patterns across different successful businesses. And so when we go to find the next successful business, we look for those patterns. So um, an example of a pattern that a lot of investors look for is uh, co-founding teams. So not um, solo founders. Investors tend to like that pattern because again, opinion, but solar founders might have a, a tougher time um, in, in building up their business because they're doing it alone. Whereas co-founding teams have people to bounce ideas off of, to share the emotional load, the skills adjacency. There's a number of reasons why some people believe that co-founding teams are better than solo founders. Um, another pattern that a lot of us identify as a good thing is founder's expertise. So does the founder have a deep domain expertise in what they're working on? So for example, if they're starting an auto part marketplace, does this person have deep expertise in building marketplaces or working with car part sourcing or logistics of delivery? Something that relates to the business that gives them an advantage over Joe Blow next door. And I could name a million of these because that's what we do. We look at other successful businesses and we match those patterns to new potential opportunities. Yeah, I think that's a really incredible insight into the investment process there, Cheryl. And it's clearly a space you're very knowledgeable about, which is probably why your next venture is focused in this space. Aussie Angels, it's intended to support investors co-investing with one another through a, a syndicate process. 
Can you tell us a bit about that and I guess how it differs to a VC fund or other investment mechanisms? So Aussie Angels um, is a bit of a complex one. And in order to get into what the due diligence process is and, and how we um, work with syndicate leads, I first just need to explain how a syndicate works. So uh, when investors go to invest in a company, they can either do so via giving the company a check directly. So they send the founder money and the founder sends them back a piece of paper that says you own equity in this business. Oftentimes the founders will set a minimum amount in order to allow that. And usually for really early stage businesses, that amount is 25K. So the minimum amount an investor needs to give a startup in order to get that piece of paper back is $25,000. Uh, for bigger businesses, uh, slightly later stage, seed and beyond, um, it's usually 50,000. And then um, series A and above, it's you know, 100, 200K. Um, but let's say you're an investor and uh, you want to invest in some of these businesses, but you also want to create a diverse portfolio. And when we talk about diverse portfolios, the general recommendation is you need to get to at least 20 companies, but 40 is the ideal minimum um, in order to create a diverse portfolio enough to be able to um, potentially hit on one of those big winners. And so let's say you need to make 20 to 40 investments of $25,000 minimum. That puts a lot of pressure on an angel investor to, to have a huge coffer of funds to be able to get into this game. Um, and so the syndicate model creates uh, space and access for those who want to create a diverse portfolio and get into this asset class, but don't necessarily have or want to invest that huge amount of money. I can't do the math in my head, but you know, you can imagine 25,000 or 50,000 times 20 to 30 investments. That's, that's a lot of money. It's probably in the millions, right? What'd you say? 20 investments at $50,000 would be exactly a million, Cheryl. Exactly. Right. So who's got a million bucks lying around, even if you do it over three or four years, like they say, again, if you talk to a financial advisor, they'll say, you know, only invest maximum 10% of your net wealth into this ultra high risk asset class, ideally about 5%, um, depending on how rich you are. Once you get into the really, really ultra rich 10% is is still nothing for them. So um, somewhere between five to 10%, who has a million dollars as 5% of their net wealth? I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, I don't. So there are some really smart people out there who have skills and expertise to give back and also want to deploy cash into this asset class and help founders. So what we do at Aussie Angels is we help investors pool their money together so that they can invest in startups as one entity. So rather than each investor going directly, we pull the money together and we invest that money with the startup and provide them back with the unit. So the investors still get to invest, um, but we create a syndicate for them so that their money can be pooled. The startup has less admin to deal with and the investors still get in. Um, the investors still own their units in that, um, in that equity, but uh, it is done via essentially this kind of um, vehicle, which we call a unit trust. So that's the fundamentals of what we do. Um, when it comes to how we work with the ecosystem, what we do is we actually identify uh, what we call syndicate leads. So people who are investing in companies who have experience in the ecosystem, who have access to amazing deal flow and who want to share that deal flow with other investors in their network. They come to us or we find them and we go, cool, we will help you uh, be able to uh, facilitate that transaction by pooling the investor's money in your network and investing it in that startup. 
because the functions of doing that are actually heavily regulated. And so if they wanted to do that on their own, it would cost them like $50,000 or more. We are able to do that for them because we do it at scale with no upfront fees. Um, we just charge a fee on the deal itself. So it takes a fifty dollars to $100,000 problem and makes it free for that syndicate lead. So they find a company they want to invest in. They have a number of investors in their network that want to invest in that company as well. And we facilitate that process of pooling all of their money together into one check, which we deploy to the startup. So what does that look like from a due diligence perspective? If you're not a deal lead, but rather one of these following investors. What do you see about the company and, and how do you make a decision to join a syndicate or not? Yeah, so each syndicate does have slight variations in how they do this, but um, the beauty of the syndicate model is that it is a deal by deal decision. So uh, the investors that are part of a syndicate get to decide on a deal by deal basis if they want to invest in that company or not. So when they join a syndicate, they're not committing to an investment like they are a fund. A fund says, give me your money and I'm going to go invest in whatever I want. And you don't really get a say, say in that after I, after you've given me your money. A syndicate is the investors just join. There's no commitment to invest. They're just putting their hand up to say, hey, when you invest in something, I want to know about it. So for example, one of our syndicate leads is Adrian Bunter. Um, he's one of the early Sydney Angels. And he, uh, you know, he'll go out and he'll find something. He'll say, cool, I want to invest in this company. And that's a personal decision on his part. Um, and in terms of due diligence, we vet the syndicate leads. And then the businesses that they want to invest in is largely up to them. Um, we trust that if they are investing in that company, that they truly believe. And uh, the people who trust Adrian, for example, you know, are trusting him. Um, we do we do legal due diligence to make sure that you know the company is not fraudulent and it's not a Ponzi scheme or whatever. Um, but for the for the most part, you know, we don't actually dictate who they can invest in, who they can't. Um, so investors get to read the notes on why the syndicate lead is investing in that company, and they make their own decision. Fantastic! Thanks for that. It's a it's an interesting, I guess, way to to learn and see what the process is from those deal leads in that case. Absolutely. Because how often like Blackbird doesn't publish their investment committee notes on why they're investing in a company. So where else are you going to learn that? Syndicate leads publish, they write up all of the notes on why I'm investing in this company and share it with their syndicate members. And so it's a fantastic way to learn. In fact, that's how I learned four years ago when I started angel investing. I joined a bunch of syndicates so that I could read their notes on why they were investing in something and make my own decision as well. Well, thanks for that rundown on Aussie Angels, Cheryl. And I know you've recently closed a funding round, so I'm sure there's a lot of fantastic growth ahead for the platform. We'll definitely link Aussie Angels in the show notes for anyone who's interested in taking a look. But before we let you go, I'd love to get your input on the best path forward for a deep tech entrepreneur or a researcher who has a discovery, a great technology, but hasn't yet closed their first funding round and maybe isn't engaged in the startup ecosystem yet. How should someone like that dip their toe in the water and, and build an understanding and build networks in the Australian startup ecosystem? Yeah, look, reaching out directly is never a bad idea. Um, starting to talk with investors online, like most of us are on Twitter and we faff around on Twitter a lot of the day. <laughs> I'll speak for myself on that one, but you'll see that there are a number of high profile investors that tweet quite a lot. Um, and it's a great way to engage with us because, uh, you know, oftentimes our calendars are full, but 
Twitter is like an extra hour or two in the day that uh, seems to exist without us actually having to schedule it. So I, I would recommend um, reaching out on social, trying to engage in a conversation. If the first time you approach an investor is with an investment pitch, it's highly unlikely that you will get a positive response to that. 100% of the companies that I've invested in have been people that I have known for a long time, have been connected with previously, have come from warm introductions from someone else that knows them um, intimately. And so starting those relationships early can be really valuable because we we like to get to know people um, before we get to get into bed with them. So it doesn't have to be a pitch right away, um, but engaging in the conversation. A lot of us talk about a lot of different topics online. You know, I talk about marketing. I talked about B2B SaaS. Um, engaging with, with investors on their level is, is an amazing way to get that started. And then also just come out to events. When I'm in Sydney, I'm at events or just having a beer around the startup hub five out of five days a week. And at, at least four or five of those days is with at least one other investor, if not other founders who know other investors. So come to the startup hub, ask a couple of people, what are you doing after this? You want to grab a beer? I promise you that that um, serendipity happens. Great advice, Cheryl. And we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Lab Notes podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all from Lab Notes today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can always check out the episode description for our guest biography and links to all of the organizations mentioned in today's episode. Lab Notes is a production of Eon Labs with music sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Dr. Nat Harris. If you've liked today's episode, don't forget you can subscribe to get new episodes in your feed and check out our back catalog for any interviews you might have missed. But that's all for now. So until next time, keep inventing.